good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen. St. Stephen's Day in the Christian year is Boxing Day, so-called because that was the day when the parish poor boxes were opened and their contents distributed in memory of Stephen, who was one of the deacons appointed in Act 6 to oversee the distribution of food to widows and other vulnerable people. We celebrate the coming of Jesus, the light of the world, one day, and Stephen becoming the first Christian martyr, the next. That's poignant. Martyr is a word that is often translated as witness, one who has seen and now testifies to what he has seen. Stephen witnessed to Jesus by his fearless preaching, by forgiving his accusers, and because his death was the point at which the new Christian church began to spread out from Jerusalem as people fled the persecution that, we're told, arose that day. Last week, Alan took us through the first part of Stephen's address. This evening, we think about the rest of what Stephen had to say and, of course, to where it led him. So we'll be thinking again about the distinctiveness of the Christian faith, and I'll share with you some of the ways I've found of holding to that distinctiveness in the secular setting of the NHS. First of all, let's look again at this fearless preacher. The action takes place in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. Both before and at the time of Christ, the Sanhedrin was the highest tribunal of the Jewish people. It met in Jerusalem, but it's a word that's also used of courts that sat in other towns too. So Acts chapter 7, verse 35, and we're on page 1100 of the Pew Bible. But we'll be moving back a few pages from there in just a moment. Why was Stephen in court? Well, there was an accusation against him. You might like to look at it uh, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 11, just back a couple of pages to 1098. And it says this. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So now we pick up Stephen's defense, just where we left off last Sunday at verse 35. Stephen, back to page 1100. Stephen is speaking from Israel's history. He's talked about Abraham, then about Joseph and the Hebrew exile in Egypt. He's gone on to Moses, 
seeing the angel in the flames of the burning bush and calling Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. Now Stephen becomes more radical with his talk about Israel rejecting the great patriarch Moses. Verses 35 to 38, he's careful to establish that Moses was acting on the authority given to him by God. And this was the same Moses who foretold that God would send a prophet like Moses from the Jewish people. It was the same Moses who was in the congregation of the people in the wilderness and with the angel who gave the Ten Commandments on Sinai. And it was the same Moses to whom God gave living words to pass on down the generations to the people present in the Sanhedrin that day. Not one of Stephen's judges could possibly make out a case that he didn't respect and admire Moses and his ministry. For Stephen, the work of Moses stands. He is not the one who has rejected Moses. It, is his, it was the ancestors of those accusing Stephen who rejected him. So now let's look at verse 44. We move on from the era of Moses to that of Kings David and Solomon. From the time of their flight from Egypt until the reign of King Solomon, the Israelites had no temple. Instead, they worshipped God in a tabernacle, the tent of meeting. It was portable, and it went with them through the wilderness and into the promised land. This was the way that God had prescribed for them at that time to worship him. And the tabernacle was made in careful obedience to God's instructions, and it remained the place of worship for generations. King David wanted to build a dwelling place for God, but it was his son Solomon who built the temple. But from the beginning... Nobody believed the temple was literally the dwelling place of God. Even in his prayer of dedication, Solomon himself said this, and you'll find it on page 345. It's 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27, page 345. Solomon said, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. But that isn't the scripture that Stephen quotes in verses 49 and 50. He opts for Isaiah 66 and verses 1 to 2 where it says this, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. How can the maker of everything be confined to man-made structures? If we go into a shop and see something labeled handmade, we take it as a mark of quality and uniqueness something that hasn't been mass-produced 
an object that a craftsman has taken time to make, and that label, handmade, handmade means by this you will enjoy it. To the Israelites of old, handmade had a quite different meaning. It meant that God had not made it or even commanded it. The object was a purely human invention and therefore a lesser object. When the phrase was applied to worship, well, things were just about as bad as they could get. This was the territory of idol worship, worshipping something made by humans as if it were God. You manufacture a God, and then you worship. What kind of nonsense is that? Just like the Israelites worshipping the golden calf that Aaron made for them. And yet, that idolatry of worshipping the golden calf is precisely what the Israelites had done with the temple. They were giving to it the place that belongs to God himself. And not only that, they were using the temple to justify their rejection of Jesus. The religious authorities had seized upon Jesus, saying the temple would be destroyed to justify killing him. Now they were doing the same with Stephen. So Stephen was not against Moses or the law or the temple, and he was certainly not against God. His point was that neither Moses nor the law nor the temple were ends in themselves. They were part of God's plan to reveal himself fully in Jesus. John Calvin wrote this, No harm can be done to the temple and the law when Christ is openly established as the truth and end of both. In verse 52, Stephen points out to the people that their ancestors rejected Moses and the prophets who foretold the coming of Jesus, the righteous one. And now they themselves have murdered him. For all their spiritual heritage, they knew little of God's ways and purposes. And for Stephen, from this moment short of uh, direct intervention by God, things were only going to go in one direction. But then Stephen knew that at the beginning. If his intention had been to defend himself, he would have gone about it differently. He was setting out what the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ had revealed about God and his dealings with humanity. That was Stephen's concern. That in Jesus, God's plan to bring eternal life is realized. It is made real. And that's why he was prepared to die rather than stop proclaiming Jesus. The truth about God was at stake. Saying this kind of thing today can produce hostile reactions in people, although not usually as hostile as the one Stephen encountered, at least not in this country. But people do wonder how we can be quite so arrogant as to imagine that we know the truth about God 
and it can become quite hot for Christians when we start talking in these terms. If knowing about God was a matter of intuiting what we can about him, then yes, it would be supremely arrogant to say that we can know anything about him at all. And if we imagine that being followers of Jesus Christ means that we have a complete and perfect understanding of him, well, that too would be arrogance. But if when we say we know the truth about God, we mean that he has revealed himself and his purposes fully in Jesus Christ, then we're not claiming to be special or any more deserving of his favor than anybody else, we're responding to his grace in making himself known. This is treasure. Stephen was prepared to die for it rather than deny it. He was a witness in his fearless and relentless preaching. But I wonder how he said all of this. Was it a rant? Or was it plain speaking, said with love? Look back at chapter 6 and verse 15. Stephen had the face of an angel when he appeared before the Sanhedrin. When they dragged him off outside the city, the crowd were covering their ears and yelling at the tops of their voices. It sounds as if they wanted to drown out Stephen's voice. They didn't want to hear. They were beside themselves with rage. Not so Stephen. His trial has been as unjust as Jesus' trial had been. Like Jesus, Stephen prays that their sin will not be held against them. Stephen could see right into heaven at that point. The veil between heaven and earth had lifted for him, like the mist that rolls away in the sunshine. Jesus was ministering directly to him. Therefore, Stephen was able to minister even to those who were stoning him. The temple was supposed to be the great place where heaven and earth came together. Stephen is showing that, in fact, they come together in Jesus and his followers. He was a witness in this, that even in the face of death, he preached with love. And that can be a hard thing to do. When we have to carry out some difficult task, maybe we have to say something that we know will go against the grain. Part of our preparation needs to be to pray that God will fill us with his love and his grace. Because it's only when it's said with love that it will do any good. This day would have stayed with those who were present for the rest of their lives. It's the first mention that we get of Saul of Tarsus, the one who held their coats for them. In chapter 8, verse 1, we're told that a great persecution began against the church on this day, thanks to him. Things were so bad that believers were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, 
a Saul set to to destroy the church. And yet in this too, Stephen was a witness because that was the beginning of the spread of the church outwards from Jerusalem. And it wouldn't be very long before Saul became Paul and he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, no longer to Jews only. The world in which Stephen witnessed was a difficult and complicated one. Christian witness in the world we inhabit in this country is rarely as dangerous as his experience. That doesn't mean that it's easy. As a Church of England chaplain working in the NHS, I'm there with a specifically Christian identity that has to be lived out in a secular organization that has to cater for all viewpoints. A large amount of time is spent in palliative care, working with people who cannot be cured and who are coming, many of them, to the end of their lives. What does Christian witness mean in such a context? Is it okay to lead somebody to Christ? The NHS has a very broad understanding of spirituality, the word that it used to describe all of this field. It covers specifically religious faith, but also more general ideas, such as helping people to keep a sense of connectedness with the person they've always been. A lot of distress comes when somebody is having difficulty in that area and feeling alienated from who they are. So when I first make contact with a patient, I explain that I'm there for everybody, whatever their outlook on life. And I'll say to them, I can talk about anything from God to gardening. Gardening, they'll often say. Did you say gardening? If they've asked the ward staff to contact me, at that point I'll carry out a fairly detailed assessment to find out just what it is they're wanting from me. So I'm listening for whether they want somebody just who will be a listening ear for them or whether they want a more specific intervention. And if they do, whether it's in the area of faith or the more general philosophy of life territory. If we're talking about faith, I seek to find out whether this is the Christian faith or another faith that they have in mind And not always, but then not infrequently either, people want me to share my Christian faith with them. And that, in the NHS today, is fine as long as I can show that I'm responding to the patient's wishes and not imposing my own. It wasn't through chaplaincy work that this insight first came to me. It was, well, 25-plus years ago, looking at the training material for the Mission England counsellors. First, find out why people have come forward. That insight has proved enormously enabling of specifically Christian ministry in the NHS. Find out what it is that people want. 
we can't make the assumptions that perhaps were made a generation ago, but we can witness in today's NHS, provided we go about it in a respectful and careful manner. Somebody who greeted me with, I don't want anything religious, the first time I said hello to him, ended up being baptised a few weeks later. A lady whose family had prayed for her for years received Jesus as her saviour. And I've got more people who are thinking and pondering and weighing it all up. Please pray for them. It is possible to exercise a distinctive Christian witness, even in a complicated situation like that. Thanks be to God. Amen.